Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Just to give you a heads up, one of us is bound to say something not suitable for little ears. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 3rd, the Vanilla Sex Edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer and contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who's just about nine, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's nine, Oliver, who's seven, and Teddy, who's five. We live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, I'm Dan Kois. I'm a writer at Slate. Uh, I'm the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 16, and Harper, who's 14. And we live in Arlington, Virginia. Who? It's who? I don't know her. You? I don't know her. You? We don't know him. We don't know him anymore. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks. Uh, I am happy to be back working at Slate. I've been gone for six months on book leave, and I wrote a book. It's terrible, but a little bit of it at least is done. So uh, book leave was a success. Thank you so much for letting me go away for a little while. But unfortunately, this is more of a pop by than a take off your coat and stay a while one, right? That's correct. This is going to be my last mom and dad are fighting for a while. I wanted to stop back in to say bye to everyone uh, one last time. But I um, have now reached the point of parenting. It took much longer than I expected it to, honestly, when we launched this podcast like 10 years ago now. But I've reached the point in parenting where my kids do not want me to talk about their, them anymore. <laughs> They are no longer interested in me sharing information about their lives, sharing my fails with regards to them, sharing funny stories about the shit that they do. They just don't want that out there anymore. Uh, and so I am stepping back from the podcast to respect those wishes, even though, in my opinion, they should embrace fame. <laughs> the moment all of us who have mined our children for content fear... <laughs> I mean, it's a miracle it took this long, honestly. And if they ever go through the archives of the very early days before Lyra was checking the transcripts every week for her name, they'll murder me. But I got away with it up till now. 
You had a good run, Dan. Yep. But fear not, listeners. Dan and other parents or teens will be popping by on occasion to tackle questions related to raising those bigger children that Elizabeth and I don't really know too much about. And boy, oh boy, do we have a great one today. We have a letter writer who was asked by her teen if she has vanilla sex. Then Elizabeth and I are going to take turns asking questions for once. Good luck to you, sir. Finally, on Slate Plus, what would it be like to switch bodies with your kids for a day? Freaky Friday style. What kind of havoc could we cause? We'll be talking all about it. But first, as always, let's start with some triumphs and fails. Dan, you probably have racked up quite a few triumphs and fails while you were away. Why don't you start? Uh, Yeah, I've got a triumph today as per usual, but unlike most triumphs, the story sucks. So the other week, uh, I was home. Alia was in North Carolina um, helping her mom, who had just had hip replacement surgery. It was the middle of a school day, and I got one of those texts where you read the text and you're like, oh boy, is this the the first beat in a horrible story that I'll never forget? Because it was from Harper at school saying, hey, they just announced a lockdown, and I can't tell if it's a drill or not. Do you know what's going on? And I was like, uh... I don't know what's going on, but it was a warm day in February here in Arlington, Virginia. And I was actually putting on my bike helmet when she texted about to ride to the grocery store. So instead, I just hopped on my bike and rode straight to the high school. And I was there in about three minutes because I wanted to know what was going on. There were like four or five other parents already standing in front of the high school who also had gotten (laughs) texts from their children because everyone has phones now. And we all tried to reassure each other instantly that whatever was going on, it didn't seem like there was anything catastrophic, like smoke wasn't rising from the school, but there were police cars. There were five police cars lined up in front of the school, all with their police car darkened windows, so we couldn't tell if there were people inside, but their lights weren't on. There weren't like people running around with guns drawn, so it didn't seem like there was an immediate emergency at that second. So some time goes by. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, I'm texting with the kids. Lyra's in a third floor classroom. Harper's in a second floor classroom. Everyone's in lockdown. The shades are drawn. The kids are like up against a wall. All the kids are just texting each other and their families. And more parents would show up to the school. We'd like give them the briefing, which is we don't know. Do you know anything? And they'd be like, no, I don't know. My kid says da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And there were all kinds of rumors right away, like... There was a rumor that there'd been a called-in bomb threat, which is not actually scary. Um, And there were rumors that there was a kid with a gun, and that's obviously scary. Then there were these rumors that there was a kid with a gun, but he'd been trapped in a bathroom by the police. So that was scary-ish? I don't know. Is that scary? It's still sort of scary, I guess. Uh, Someone said that their kid texted them saying they saw a kid get taken away in handcuffs. But, of course, immediately, like, the rumor mill is grinding, and the rumor mill moves faster than it has ever moved before now that every kid also has a phone. Mm -hmm. And their bad judgment is combined with parents' bad judgment. So within, like, five minutes, the name of this kid who supposedly had been led away in handcuffs was on the lips of every parent outside, even though we didn't know who that was at all. We were all like, oh, I heard it's such and such. And everyone's like, oh, really? And then we sort of settled in this long waiting period where just nothing was happening. The girls texted me their Wordle scores uh, for the day. Um, Lyra's friends had already started making memes about it, and they were sending the memes around. 
Um, Alia finally got back on her phone. She'd been on like a Zoom call and she had a thousand texts and she just called me and was like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, and I like gave her the rundown, um, which was again that it didn't seem like there was a crisis. No one was running around. Kids were not like running, screaming out of the building. Like it seemed like something was happening, but whatever it was, it was not like an active shooter or a bombing or something like that. But here were my triumphs from this situation. I got there fast, which I view as a triumph in this case. Um, I helped to keep my kids calm by sort of giving them the rundown on what I was seeing outside and not telling them the more insane rumors that I was hearing. And I stuck around, you know, pretty soon, within like 45 minutes, all the parents that were in front of the school ended up inside this much wider cordon that they had set up in like the blocks around the school, which no one was getting through. But the police never got around to clearing all of us gawkers off the front porch of the school. So there were just like 15 of us standing there. Um, and so like we were the ones who saw when the first couple of classes came out of the school, all the first floor classes, like, a, you know, the kids who were in the gym and the kids who were in the cafeteria who came out all calmly and talking to each other and like not panicked. So I reported that to my kids that like some kids are starting to leave and they look not super freaked out. So that was useful. So about an hour after this, after all this started, uh, we got an email from the school. Everyone got an email from the school that there had been a phone in threat. They thought at this time that no one was actually in danger, but they had to empty out the school according to this procedure. And it was going to take a long time. Then three minutes later, we got another email from the school about the career fair. Because the emails from the school never stop, even when they're under lockdown. Um, but the plan was they were going to take all the kids out of the school, sort of class by class, out onto the football field. But then from the football field, because this was the emergency plan, they were going to put them on buses. And they were going to bus them three blocks away to the Knights of Columbus pool, where they could then be picked up by their parents. In theory, that was maybe great, but in practice, it was a gigantic clusterfuck because there were lines of buses outside the football field, totally backed up by the traffic of the one trillion parents right. who had driven to the school to try and figure out what was going on. And they couldn't even get to the Knights of Columbus pool because of the gigantic traffic jams everywhere to get to a place that the kids could have walked in five minutes. So anyways, the kids are going totally stir crazy. Their phone batteries were good, thankfully. They were very sick of being stuck in their rooms. They were sick of being scared about what was happening. They were sick of no one telling them what was going on and or people telling them way too many things that weren't going on. Right. Lyra really had to pee, and her physics teacher was telling boys who said they had to pee, well, we've got soda bottles. But Lyra was like, I will not fucking pee in a soda bottle. Get me out of here. So after about two hours of lockdown, Harper from the second floor finally got out on the football field. And my other triumph was that I was inside the cordon. So I rode <laughs> my bike over to the football field gate and I parked myself next to the gate where they were walking out toward the buses. And as she walked out, I like flagged her down. I was like, come over here. And she was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to. And I was like, you're allowed to. <laughs> and then, uh, right. And then, and then a cop and a, and like an administrator who were there were like, it's fine. You can go, just yeah. go. You don't have to get on the bus. I loved what a rule follower she was. She was like, okay, but it seems wrong. But I gave her a big hug and we talked about what had happened a little bit. Then she took my bike and rode to a neighbor's house to hang out. And then Lyra was still in her classroom for like another hour after that. She was one of the last ones to get out. Oh um, I caught Why? her. Because it just takes a really long time to clear kids out of classrooms one by one. And it turned out they were doing it in like the most efficient, 
way where like a cop knocks on the door and then everyone has to go out of the room with their hands up and walk through the hall. And it just took for fucking ever. But I also picked up Lyra before she got wrapped up in this whole thing. And I gave her a big hug. And she immediately said, I found this very sweet. Where's Harper? I was really worried about Harper and I want to see her. She knew that she was fine. She'd seen the text, but she just really wanted to see her. So we went back to that neighbor's house and the girls gave each other a big, gigantic hug. And the drama was over. So it's a triumph, but also it fucking sucked. Just the worst. Just the worst. Just the worst. Yeah. Uh, In the end, it was nothing. There was a kid who was briefly in handcuffs because in the middle of lockdown, he started running around the halls yelling, like, to be a dick. Right, Um, but not not as a result of the... But no, no, he did not have a gun or anything. It was that someone had called in a fake threat. (sighs) Um, It's insane to me that that is all it takes to just absolutely shut down an entire high school and to freak out a thousand kids and the thousands of people attached to them. You know, they handled it well considering but also it's nuts that that that's how they'll have to handle it forever every time anyone does something like that i know it just seems like there should be a better way i mean i know like keeping things secret is important like it's important to not release too much information but i do feel like the school could give have provided information to prevent the panic Right? Like, right. Like some... I think that's what they were trying to do with the message that was like, we believe no one is in danger. But that was like not enough. Right. But I mean, like, the other problem is at that point, they, they believed that, but they didn't know for sure know that, there yeah. was, that something wasn't going to happen. The thing that impressed me about the way the school handled it was that the next day, they didn't give all the details, but they actually were extremely forthcoming in an email to everyone that this phone threat came in. This is what it said. They, they said that they were in the bathroom and had hostages and that police showed up. They actually talked to the person on the phone. They determined the call was actually coming from like across the country. Right. And so knew that no one was actually in the bathroom, but then had to institute this whole procedure. We're going to be looking at the procedures to see what didn't work. But like they actually gave way more information than well, I thought good. they would. Because I feel like in cases like this, it usually is like there was no credible threat. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just. It was fine. Sorry we lost today. Yeah. Uh, I would have had a hard time not like trying to go find out actual information and thus impeding any progress. It was interesting all the parents who had gotten there early who we were all just sort of like lightly cracking nervous jokes to each other for an hour. Well, all, obviously all of us on the edge of hysteria, but we like all managed to keep it together. I was proud of us all. <laughs> Good job, Dan and uh, first responder parents. What about you, Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. So Oliver, the seven-year-old, has been asking to have us spend the night because his brother has a couple. We're kind of weird about spend the nights. Like, I I can't. I'm not like a big fan of the big spend the night parties, and I have to feel really comfortable with where they're going. But Henry has a couple friends that I feel very comfortable with. We know their parents very well. Um, but Oliver doesn't really have that. Plus, he doesn't always sleep in his bed all night. Like, he's still coming into our room. So I continuously kind of say, like, you can't have this kind of behavior if you're staying at someone else's house. But he's been, like, really asking. I really want to have this spend the night. He does have one of his, like, closest friends is also the son of my best friend's mom. But her son has the same problem. 
Like, he wanders around, he doesn't sleep. So she had this idea. She was going to come over anyway to help me kind of reorganize some stuff in the house because Jeff was off snowmobiling. So I decided to move a bunch of furniture, and she was going to come over and and help me do that while he was gone. So we decided, okay, what if she spent the night, too? Like, she'll spend the night, and this um, little boy, William, will spend the night, and then we'll, like, have us spend the night, but both moms will be there, so everyone will feel comfortable. And so we we set up the, <laughs> set up, like, the basement. They're going to sleep down there, set up the sleeping bags, all of that. Everyone is, like, so excited. We're like, okay, let's put on a movie for them. And, like, eight minutes into the movie, Oliver comes upstairs. He's like, I'm going to my bed. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Does <laughs> William want to move up to your room, too? So I go downstairs. William's like, no, but I'd like to sleep in Henry's room because in order to do this, we, we farmed Henry out to her, to... To the brother of this kid, right? So Henry's spending the night somewhere else. We just have the little kids. So he's like, no, I'd like to sleep in my own room, which is now like the furthest away from, you know, his mom, the room his mom is going to stay in. So he goes up to Henry's room and then Teddy is like, I'm out. Teddy usually sleeps with Oliver, but instead was like, no, I'm going to sleep on the floor outside mom and dad's room. So now like the start of this month, the night is like all three kids have gone somewhere else to sleep. I go in to, like, talk to Oliver, like, hey, usually in to spend the night, like, part of the fun is that you're, like, hanging out with your friend. He's like, well, I can't sleep with him here. <laughs> He's like, we just want to talk. I want to sleep. I'm like, all right, cool. Then I, like, knock on the door, and William has gotten his fingers stuck in, in um, a finger trap in Henry's room. And he's, like, wandering around. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? Henry has, like, this loft bed. And he's like, I can't get into bed. I got my fingers <laughs> So I'm like, okay, here's how you get them on you know, push them together. Um, and then he's like, I don't want to sleep here. I want to, I want to, <laughs> I want to sleep with my mom. I'm like, okay, cool. So he moves downstairs again. We set him up a, a little bed. The night was like, everyone slept great. They all slept in their own rooms. Like every sure, yeah. person in their own space. The next Fun morning. Fun was had by everyone in their dreams. Yeah. Yeah. The next morning we, um, Jeff had come home from snowmobiling. So he made cinnamon rolls and all this fun, like, you know, fun breakfast food. And the kids are like, this is the best thing. We had the best spend the night. We can't wait to tell, you know, the other kids. It's like, no, you just, this is the same as when we go camping and we sleep in different tents and we see each other in the morning. But you know what? Oliver feels very proud that he had this spend the night. I moved most of the furniture in my house without my husband complaining because the kids were so occupied moving rooms and playing. Um, and we all had a lovely breakfast. So I'm taking it as a win. Although, you know, now Oliver's like, well, I can spend the night. I've had to spend the night now. It's fine. <laughs> it's like, I can no, do this. No, you have it. We, there was a long period where Lyra was desperate to have sleepovers, but she always fell asleep at like 745. <laughs> So she would have kids come over for sleepovers and then there would be like three hours where we just had to entertain the kid because Lyra had fallen asleep. That was like this. Like all of this is happening at seven, not at 10, at like 7.30 or eight. (laughs) You know, by nine o'clock, everyone was asleep. It's always so awkward hanging out with other people's kids. That's like my fear of letting Naima have a sleepover. I'm like, if you crash first... I'm the one they're having the sleepover with. And sometimes that's what happens when people come over, period. Just like, oh, I want to go be by myself. Or, oh, she's on my nerves. And all of a sudden, now I'm on a play date. I know, but, like, how do you tell them? Because Oliver's like, maybe we can do another one. And I'm thinking, like, no. <laughs> because if the mom wasn't here, this would have been my problem. <laughs> right. This would have been a nightmare, actually. Uh, Jamila, how was your week? Um, I have a small triumph, and I'm going to take it. Uh, this morning, we were getting dressed for school. 
Naima noticed that I pulled out a pair of shorts for her. I remembered because yesterday she said, can I wear shorts tomorrow if it's going to be hot? And I said, sure. She says, you know, I've been getting hot on the playground with my pants on. I'm like, cool, no big deal. Because the weather here, we get three to four seasons a day. So there have been days where I'm dropping her off. It's in the 50s and it's chilly. And then by lunchtime or recess time, it's 80 degrees out. So sorry to complain. These are very L.A. problems. I apologize. But Yeah, yeah, I'm so sympathetic. <laughs> but sometimes it's literally cold enough to wear, like, you know, a light winter coat in the morning. Yeah. You know, and, and, and then very different in the middle of the day. But today it wasn't too chilly in the morning, so I put her in shorts. And she said, oh, you remembered. You're such a good mommy. And I was so happy to hear that because I remember so many things. And I am constantly making mocktails and giving massages and essentially just running around being her, you know, handmaiden. And today she rec- she she took notice. She took notice. Is, you were seen. I felt seen. The rare times that that ever happens to us are so valuable. You got to like write them down and treasure them forever. I'm absolutely treasuring that forever. So thank you, Naima, yeah. for seeing me, affirming me and making me feel like a good mommy today. It's incredible how much our kids beat us down that we like appreciate something that crumb crumb little of gratitude. You remember to pull out the shorts, even though I could have just pulled out the shorts. Right. right. You remembered. I remembered. I got a hug. I got a kiss. She said, come get this love. You don't always get all this loving. You're going to get this love. I said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I need it. Talking about money can be so hard, especially when the person you're talking to is still learning how to do long division. That's why Million Bazillion, a Webby-winning podcast from Marketplace, is here to help. I'm Bridget, and with my fellow co-host Ryan, we help teach your little ones about complex topics like bankruptcy, climate change, and why there's so much gold at Fort Knox, and so much more. Listen to Million Bazillion wherever you get your podcasts. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Enough about us. Let's get into our first listener question, which is being read, as always, by the lovely Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad, my gay 13-year-old daughter dresses in pink emo and calls me one of the straights, which I find humorous. I've had a fun, adventurous sex life. I spent time with different genders and different scenes, dove deep, no regrets. My husband and I are in our 40s and live as a straight couple, just the two of us with our two middle schoolers. We're openly affectionate with each other in front of our children, but keep our sex life private. Recently, my 13-year-old asked in the car if her father and I still had sex. I told her that, yeah, we did, and for dramatic effect, that we expected to until we're dead. She shuddered like it was unimaginable, but said that she respected that answer. Then she asked if I was all vanilla. (laughs) I didn't predict that question. I dodged, but left the door open to answering a more specific question in the future. So my question is, is sex serious? It's private, but if my daughter asks the right question and I answer honestly, she just might hear that I always approach it with curiosity and think it's great fun. But I also know that people do get hurt, 
have regrets, and even get diseases. Society doesn't exactly love a woman if she's enjoying herself in the wrong way. I've taught my children respect and consent, which applies to everything. It's something I model. When I kiss the top of my teens' heads, I seek consent. They've never said no, but I ask anyway. Have you thought about how much morality, internal or external, you intend to layer in with your birds and bees talk? If you've already had to decide, what message did you settle on? Thanks. Well, let's go to our expert uh, raiser of teenagers, Dan, to find out. Have you told your children how kinky you get yet? Uh, no, we, we have not gone into that in great detail with them. It's interesting to me the way this question starts with the sort of, what do you do if your kid asks you specifics about your sex life, but moves into a sort of grander question, which is about how do you deliver the message of essentially sex positivity to your kids? Um, how much do you moralize? How much do you perhaps tie in your own experience? When is that valuable? When is that not useful? In general, I think in a situation like this, I would probably respond way worse than this parent did. And I would just be like, uh, don't go around asking people how vanilla they are. <laughs> People's sex life is a real not your business kid type situation. And you don't need to be like asking randos how their sex life is. I'm interested that she left open the possibility of answering like more specific questions about her own personal sex life later down the road. Like that is just not on the table in our family. Um, and I don't think ever would be like my hunches when my kids are grown ass adults, I still will not be talking <laughs> with them about the specifics of our sex life, but who knows maybe that we'll have that kind of relationship. Um, but I do think the broader question is the more important one, which is when you talk about sex generally, how do you present uh, the the ethics and morality behind it. And that to me seems like a case where what we always try to stress when we talk to them uh, in conversations that for the most part don't go on for very long before the kids are repulsed just by the act of talking with us about general sex, not even our own particular sexual situation. Just that sex exists, period. Right, that sex exists, period, um, is to try to convey that that in fact, yes, it is a thing people do because they enjoy it, that it feels good and makes a connection with a person. And when done in a respectful and helpful and kind way, it can be a truly great experience for everyone who's involved in it. Um, and that is basically as far as we usually get um, before they're like, okay, I'm satisfied by that answer and do not wish to speak about this for seven more months. And that's with teenagers who are like, you know, who are like at actually theoretically sexually active ages. Like, yeah, that's not even talking about when they were like seven or eight, when it was basically like, ah, they would run screaming. But it sounded like this girl kind of recoiled. She did the recoiling. <laughs> yeah, but then she asked But then anyway. she advanced. <laughs> yeah. Right. Ballsy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very impressed with her, with this daughter, yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting that she presents it as this, like, dichotomy, because sex is not, right? It is both serious and fun. It is both private right. and, like, you. we talk about it with people in our lives. Like, there's all these 
elements of it. And and what this made me think of is that the um, Amsterdam Science Museum, the Nemo, has this whole permanent exhibition that is a room, of basically, of sex education. And we ran into this at a lot of places in the Netherlands, that this was just presented kind of like information about sex. Um, not necessarily the medical information that we're taught here, but like this room at the Nemo has a little, it's, it's like open doors, but it says like, you know, the, the suggested age is 12 and up, but anyone can go in there. And there are just like hundreds of different kinds of dildos and a video of people orgasming, like just their faces. And there were the, these puppets that had tongues and you could like make them French kiss was the idea, like all this weird stuff. But with the, the overall message being sort of like, this is a jumping off point for discussion, but also like it is funny and it is fun, but also like an entire room of different kinds of condoms to talk about sexually transmitted disease and why that's important. And obviously I have not, my children have not asked me any details about sex lives. They, they got sex education when we were in the Netherlands that was taught even to my four-year-old as a very like babies are made, you know, with an egg and a sperm and a penis goes into a vagina. Like it, it was taught very basically they have this whole set curriculum for the country that includes talking about consent, talking about uh, it, like different ways to approach sex, all, all these kind of different decisions that surround it. And it's such a personal decision what you share with them and, and what the mood is, right? Like in the car, did she say this just to kind of shock you versus like if they're coming to you with a problem or telling, sharing their experiences with you and you feel like the next step to have a conversation is to share something back. I think in that moment, you'll know whether this is something that you want to have that conversation, you know, or not, like how much you want to let them in. I also think it's important to establish boundaries. Like if this is not something you feel comfortable talking about, it's also perfectly appropriate to tell your children this is not <laughs> something I plan to share with you. Yeah, I feel like a lot of what needs to be said to children about sex can be found, you know, within the questions you raised in the letter, you know what I mean? Or just the things that you were considering that, you know, yes, it can be approached with curiosity, but it can lead to being hurt or getting sick or, you know, having regrets and that there are these societal rules and, and things that are going to impact how, you know, you may feel about yourself or how people may feel about you in relation to some of the sexual decisions that you've made. And I think it's important that you do talk to your children about that. Like I, um, my mother didn't talk, my, my parents didn't talk to me much about love and dating period growing up. You know, I mean, there was definitely a lot of safe sex talk. I got that drilled into me, you know, and I think there was something relatively sex positive and that I was definitely not raised to think that if I, you know, spread my legs, I was a bad girl or, you know what I mean? That there was some sort of inherent shame that came with having an interest in sex. Like I didn't pick that stuff up at home at all, but, but there just wasn't a lot of talk. And I, I wish that there had been a little bit more conversation around dating in particular, mm. um, as opposed to sex. And the two are so deeply intertwined and, and so often young people are exploring, um, you know, both of them at an age before they're really mature enough to do so. And so I think having some guidance around like what might happen, you know, if you like somebody and you decide to sleep with them and what might happen if that person is not, you know, transparent with you about their intentions or if they don't have the same interest in you that you have in them, you know, and that you're 
being introduced to some of the heartbreaks and challenges that can befall you as you enter, you know, a, a sexually active world without being blindsided or only relying on, you know, pop culture and, you know, your um, friends to tell you about it. And of course, there's, you know, great books about adolescent sexuality and things that you can turn to. But I think in regard to looking to your own experience, there's a time and place as as far as, you know, going as specific as to these are some of the things that I've done or this is some of the stuff that I've been into. And I think personally, it's just kind of hard for me to imagine that most kinks are really worth discussing with your very young child. You know, I don't know that I would ever really want to talk kink with my child or my mother, period. But I think it might be affirming for your child to hear that you've had relationships or, you know, experiences with different genders and that you have explored yourself uh, freely. And, you know, that there were things that you did that went well and things that didn't go so well. And you learned a lot along the way and you're happy to share what you've learned um, without Mm -hmm. it being focused on here. The nasty, gory details of what I've done. It is interesting um, how much... other than your last point, Jamila, we have all three of us have sort of steered towards broad general conversations about, uh, you know, the value that sex has and the risks that it runs and even broader conversations about, well, what dating might be like and what you what kinds of experiences you might have. And we've mostly not actually talked about the kink part of this question. Um And the one thing that gives me pause about that is, you know, the knowledge that my kids are only a few years away from being part of a dating and sexual scene that to me seems like the fucking Wild West and is certainly going to provide any number of opportunities for them to get involved with people who have totally different desires and expectations than they might. And I do feel like I'm not necessarily doing a great job of preparing them for that possibility or eventuality, um, or even letting them know that it might be coming. And it may be that I don't need to because they have the internet. And so uh, every possible uh, kink and predilection uh, has been you know, shown to them in 180 pixel high definition video already. But nevertheless, I do think this sort of granular question of what do you do um, when what someone else wants and what you want are not exactly in opposition, but are not exactly congruent mm-hmm. is one that is worth talking about. I think a lot about a really great profile that Slate ran while I was away on book leave, a profile of Dan Savage, the uh, sex advice columnist mm-hmm. for The Stranger, who's been doing this for like 20 years or something. Um, and it was written by a really terrific writer, Laura Anderson, um, a former Slate staffer. And A significant part of the piece was written not exactly about Dan Savage, but about Laura's life as a young woman on the dating scene, essentially attempting to use the the sort of lessons that Dan Savage had taught for so long in her life to be good giving and game, as Dan Savage always says. And the ways that that often ended up feeling to her as though what was actually happening was that she was just allowing every guy she ended up with to just do whatever he wanted. And then no one was actually being good giving and game to her. Um, And (laughs) Jamila's rueful. Yup. Really says, speaks volumes here. Uh, I grew up reading Dan Savage. That was like, he, yeah, 
introduces you to a very high level of like sexual ethics that most people are not actually able to live up to. So like to do the things yeah. that he talks about really requires a lot of maturity and uh, honesty that's pretty hard to access. And many of the people 23-year-olds date right. do not have that maturity. Yeah, and being honesty, in a relationship yes. with someone else who's playing by the same rules, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. So that is the kind of stuff that I feel like I'm not doing a great job preparing them for. And that broad, vague platitudes of the type that I've been delivering, even if they're true, maybe don't do a great job of preparing someone for. We talk about consent for like, can I give you a hug? Can I give you a kiss? Do you want to have sex? But this idea that like, no, consent is like, continu we're continuously getting consent in our sexual relationship. And what to do when that consent doesn't happen? Like, how, how can I remove myself from the situation? And I guess I just think that if we practice that with small things, that we're building the confidence they need when it's a big thing. You know, it's tricky. It, there's just such a fine line with kids with, you know, uh, the things that need to be said and just giving them information that they can't handle or, or, you know, would prefer not to have. So they don't have to have their minds, you know, rocked by you saying, yeah, you know, in 97, after a Smashing Pumpkins concert, we went backstage with Billy Corgan and blah, 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 blah. Like, that's, you know, that may be too much. And then maybe one day your kid will be 22 and you'll be having a glass of wine and you can totally kiki about these things. Because I know people who have that sort of relationship with their parents. You know, usually it's it's a mom and a daughter. I don't really know any yeah. <laughs> guys that are talking to their mothers about sex like that or... You know, and I shudder to think about boys and their fathers because that can go in a whole lot of different directions. I mean, in terms of the fathers encouraging terrible things. Let me be clear that that was exactly what I was referring to. No, no, to. I, yeah. I understand. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think that that's as urgent as it is that you create, you know, a constant culture of sex positivity in your house, which means that sex questions are not bad and sexual curiosity is not bad. And, you know, that you are respecting of the fact that, you know, sex is not only a source of curiosity and, and you know, interest to your child, but that it's, um, you know, something that they'll have to define for themselves and have their own experiences with independent of you and how you may want to guide them, but that they really need you to be there and, and feel that you're non-judgmental. And that you're safe, you know, to talk to about these things, which is tricky because, you know, you'd hate to have a kid. And I've heard horror stories, you know, of, of people nursing an STD because they're afraid, you know, and it gets worse and worse and they don't want to tell anyone. And, you know, because their parents didn't make them feel that they could come and say, I've had sex. So they're suffering, you know, on their own as opposed to being able to say that. So I think th that's your biggest goal. Like, does your child feel not just comfortable asking do you all have vanilla sex because that's a shocking and kind of funny question but like coming to you and saying i've done something and there are some consequences and i need to deal with them or i've done something and i have some feelings and i need to process them and i need you to be there for me yeah that's all right and you're right that the point is not to address every possible hypothetical but to build a a, a groundwork of ethics that allows someone to navigate any number of different situations. I just remember being 24 and how sex in particular seemed to bring out the worst in everyone I knew. And, you know, that scares me, but also that is also part of 
being a person in the world and growing up and probably the answer is not to tell my Billy Corgan story. That's for Slate Plus members only. But to think a lot about the groundwork you are building in questions of morality and ethics and be really consistent about them all the time. All right. Thank you again, Letter Writer, and we will always take an update. If you have a letter for us, you can send it to mom and dad at slate.com, or you can do what this listener did and post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. All right. Now, we didn't email these questions in advance, but we're going to claim host privilege and ask them anyway. Are you ready, Dan? Yes. So so I'm ready to be peppered with questions from you guys uh, about my long history at mom and dad are fighting. Go for it. We are here to talk about Dan's long history of mom and dad are fighting. And my first question is, what is the most memorable letter that you got in the 49 years that you've been hosting this show? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Vanilla Sex was uh, probably top 10, I bet. That was a good one. (laughs) That's a good one. I would have to go back to find the most outrageous one. But the one that comes to mind um, is one that wasn't particularly outrageous, but that spurred an incredibly fascinating conversation very early in the life of the show that ended up, I think, defining what made the show different, like what made the show unique uh, in the sort of parenting sphere, at least in my mind. And that was maybe only in our third or fourth episode. Um, Allison uh, Benedict, rest in peace, and I got a uh, letter from a non-parent who felt ambivalent about having kids and who wanted to know how we made the decision to have kids and and what we thought someone who sort of thought maybe they should have kids or whose partner was interested in having kids but didn't really know what to do should do. And that um, was a kind of question that I never thought anyone would write into a parenting podcast with and that I'd never really heard anyone in the sort of, you know, in the parenting space talk about that much. It was sort of taken as a given that if you are reading in this world or listening in this world, you not only have kids, but you live for them and they're all you care about. Um, and so the conversation that ensued from that uh, between Allison and I about the doubts that we had had about having kids, the ways and reasons that we decided to have kids in the end, and the advice we gave, which was, I mean, literally in my case, if you don't feel 100% like you super want to have a kid, don't do it. Like, wait, there's no reason to rush into it. I was surprised to hear those words coming out of my mouth because I don't think I had ever exactly articulated it in that way before, but it made the podcast into something different than what we expected it to be, which was, which was that it was about the grander questions of parenting as much as it was about the nitty gritty, what kind of diaper should I buy Mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. And the grandest question of parenting of all, of course, is should I be a parent? And the way we address that, which I think helped to make child free people feel more comfortable listening to the show and more interested in it. um, And which also helped listeners and us feel more comfortable talking honestly about the stuff in parenting that was great, as well as the stuff that was difficult um, really did, I think, set the tone for the show over the years. So whoever it was who sent that question in, um, which was very unexpected, I am very grateful for that. That's awesome. I feel like anyone who's listened or even just joins for an episode um, 
like, here's the connection that you have created with your daughters. And so, like, even through all of the, <laughs> all of the fails, all of the triumphs, like, what really shines through is that you have created this really great relationship and connection with them. Is there something, if you had to narrow it down to, like, one or two things that you did consistently to create this connection, what would they be? I have a couple of practical things that spring to mind. Many of them are things that I've talked about on the show at, often as recommendations or, or, um, or triumphs over the years. Um, one is that we have over the past nine years, basically we have basically, we have driven into our kids the expectation that when they get home from school, they will have to sit down and talk to us a little bit about the things that happen to them during the day. Even if they are super fucking boring, we don't care. They have to come up with something to tell us about. We made that happen er, you know, when they were much younger by uh, playing a game that we talked about a lot in the early years of the show, which is Two Truths and a Lie, right? It was when kids had trouble coming up with something that they wanted to talk to us, we would frame it in the context of a game where sitting around the dinner table, they would have to tell us two true things that happened in the day and then make up one false thing and everyone would try and guess what the false thing was. And that was a way to get them to search their memories and come up with a thing. Now we don't do the game anymore. It's not necessary, usually, but they just understand that when they get home, it doesn't matter how boring their day was. It doesn't matter if they have anything interesting to say or not. They got to sit down and talk to us at least a little bit about it. And that has really helped us understand what is going on in their daily lives, what is what their school experience has been like, how their friend relationships are going. And obviously, I'm sure it's only 10% of the iceberg that's you know above the surface of the water. I'm sure there's so much underneath that we have no idea about. But creating that ritual that then becomes expected like so many other rituals in family life has been incredibly valuable in accreting levels of detail that we understand about them and mm -hmm. giving us opportunities to talk with them about stuff uh, over the years. 99 times out of 100, the conversation doesn't turn into anything important or serious, but one time out of 100, something does come up that, that it turns out there's something that is more necessary to talk about or that we're deeply grateful that this yeah. thing existed. So that has been really great. And I uh, really recommend that if you can do it and they don't always love it and they often roll their eyes, but they just understand that this is just like a thing you have to deal with, with mom and dad. And the other thing uh, that uh, we did was that we uh, have tried to continue having adventures, you know, even before the trip, that was a big part of our life. And of course the trip was the grand adventure of their childhoods, I think. But even after that, even in the COVID era, we have tried to get them out of their comfort zone and get ourselves out of our comfort zone a little bit and go to places and do things that they weren't expecting. And that has, I will always stand firm that that is the thing that I hope my kids will remember about their childhood and that they will tell people about and that they will try and instill in their kids if they have them down the line. So yeah, that's what I come up with. I love it. <laughs> Is there anything personal that you've shared on the show and later regretted doing so? Yes. <laughs> uh, any number of things, even on the occasions when I was right, like when I talked about the pandemic pod. <laughs> Um, the great furor of the first year of the show, which longtime listeners will already be rolling their eyes about as I start to bring it up, was the stay-at-home mom disdain gate 
of, I believe, 2004, 2005. I can't remember exactly when it was. It was when Allison and I did a like a, a quick take lightning round, which we literally did because we just didn't have a good idea for a second segment, one episode. Um, and at the last minute, we were just like, let's just do a thing where we just like ask each other questions and you have to answer in one word. And we we're like, great. And Allison and was like, all right, how do you feel about X? How do you feel about Y? And then she was like, how do you feel about stay-at-home moms? And I was like, I don't know, disdain. <laughs> and um, that yielded 10,000 angry emails. This is when we saw the phone uh, line that people would call in with questions on. Um, and so people were calling into whatever, like 433 rude and being like, go to hell, Dan, I'm a stay at home mom. And I can't believe you treat me with disdain. Um, and they were absolutely right. Of course, to be, uh, infuriated at me because what a totally rude thing to say. <laughs> That's awful, Dan. But it did yield in the, in the manner of untimely, poorly thought out personal revelations, um, some great content, a whole nother episode where we then, where I, I then had to like explain myself, uh, plus like a 3000 word slate piece or something that I spent days writing. Boy, did I agonize over that. But yeah, that's the great personal revelation I made at one time that I definitely should not have said out loud. One might even say I shouldn't have said it today. <laughs> I was going to say that could have been saved for your therapist, but that's right. That's great right. news. It's your guy's problem now. I'm off this show. I'll just be outraged on behalf of all the other stay-at-home moms. Um, Was there a moment that you took a parenting stance that felt controversial or maybe even like went against the grain, but in hindsight, you feel proud that the stance became more widely accepted? Oh, boy. We know. I think we know what this one is. I already brought that one up. Yeah. The thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently due to the news um, is my longstanding, often stated belief on this show that there is no such thing as an inappropriate book. I don't know if it goes against the grain. I think you guys basically agreed with me, but I do think we heard a lot from listeners uh, and, and people on the Facebook page that it was crazy to like not screen what your kids read. But, you know, I have long said that, like, I read shit that was totally inappropriate for me when I was a kid, but it did nothing but make me curious about things and uh, and did not damage me and uh, made just made me want to learn and read more. Um, and that the value of reading beyond your supposed reading level so far outstrips any possible harm you might undergo by reading a Stephen King book or like seeing the F word uh, that it doesn't even make sense to think about like banning books as a result of their appropriateness. And I've been thinking about that a lot these days as we see like the one trillionth time that appropriateness is used as a cudgel to remove books from libraries or schools or communities. Like the idea that Mouse is not appropriate for eighth graders is stupid. The idea that the concept of the 1619 project or um, that the idea that white people were, in fact, responsible for slavery is too damaging to tell our children. And so, therefore, we can't have books that say that uh, in our libraries is so stupid um, that I feel really on the right side of history with that one. I think that's a great one. All right. I have a question for you guys. 
okay. um, on my last day. Uh, what is the dumbest advice or thing I've ever said or done on this show? <laughs> well, I think it's when you just brought up disdain <laughs> for stay-at-home moms. I don't think you could talk It's got to be something. Sorry, since, I didn't. Pre- I didn't prep you. In no, advance you didn't for this prep one. us. I just but I feel like there are these moments when you you double down on things for the sake of doubling <laughs> down on them. Um, yeah, that's the slate editor in me. Yeah, yeah. as opposed to backing yeah. away slowly. <laughs> and then you have um, this way of going onto the Facebook page and inviting comment, like inviting people to continue to come after you. Yeah. Which I have a general like, <laughs> like it's, it's one thing like if we Facebook say something forever. and it's going out, but I'm not going to invite anyone to come to, come at me with it again. It's just engagement, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you like to have the argument, which is fun, of course. And I think some of that, too, in, in sort of the way that... Jamila, I'm going to speak for us, that we parent as millennials, I think is more like when we encounter something that isn't the way we would do it, but we don't really find hurtful. It's like, okay, that's weird. And I wouldn't do that, but okay, you be you. (laughs) And I think often when you encounter that, it seems like you're, you're more, no, (laughs) which is, I'm definitely more, I'm definitely more outraged by absurdity. And, and even though I recognize I should just let people be people. Sometimes I cannot stop myself. And I also know that that is like maybe one of the least attractive aspects of my parenting. I think I am just, I just have a lot of unnecessary arguments with my children (laughs) because I just can't believe the insane things that they do or believe uh, or, or espouse. And instead of just being like, you are 16. Why, why needs I have this debate with you? I leap into it full throttle. Rarely does good ensue. I definitely feel like we've had some people that have written in and you feel personally like that you have to correct (laughs) the way they behave. And I feel more like that's weird, (laughs) but don't be you. (laughs) What did they write in for if they didn't want me to correct them? (laughs) Exactly. That's a good point, Dan. All right. Well, I have really enjoyed being on the show um, for 49 years. It's really helped me raise my children who are now ages 50 and 48. And it has been really great to connect with listeners in all the ways that I've connected with them. Often positive, often because of them being angry at me. But I would say 90% of the time with them expressing real care for my family and all of our families and being grateful and for the advice we give, even if it's bad and enjoying the stories that we tell often the care for my family exhibits itself in concern for my children, given the things that I've said on the show. But I also think that that's a kind of care that they're showing me as well. So thank you to uh, all the listeners and thank you too, for being such great co-hosts the last couple of years. I've really, really, really loved talking about shit with you. Well, it's been really fun talking about shit with you too, Dan. We will miss you. Uh, rest in peace. But, but he'll be he'll you. be back. It's... He already. We have the email where he said he's going to come back and help us answer teen questions. I will pop in from time to time, but I am also dead to you. Yeah. yeah. Never forget. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be back from the grave. That's right. Back from the grave. Well, before we uh, 
put Dan all the way in. Let's do some recommendations. Uh, Elizabeth, what do you have this week? I am recommending a graphic novel called When Stars Are Scattered, and it's by Victoria Jamison and Omar Mohammed. And it is the story of Omar's um, time in a refugee camp and sort of every all the decisions he had to make. Um, he's taking care of his, his brother um, in this camp. And it is a just such a wonderful book. I, I actually, um, Henry asked for it from the Scholastic Book Fair. It was a graphic novel. I was like, sure. Um, and he read it and said, hey, I think you'd really like this. So he basically recommended it to me and I read it. And now we've had some wonderful kind of discussions. And then with everything going on kind of with Ukraine, it has been a a wonderful way to talk about refugees and about um, kind of the hardships they face, but also, you know, the challenges of being in the camp, what life is actually like. And it's beautifully illustrated and um, just, a, just a wonderful, heartfelt story. I definitely recommend it. Oliver's now read it too. And it just gives the kids some context um, in a way that I think some other things uh, can't provide. When Stars Are Scattered by Victoria Jamison and Omar Mohammed. Very nice. Dan? Uh, it is not out yet, but uh, because I will not be here next week, I'm going to recommend now the new Pixar movie, Turning Red. Uh, it comes out a week from Friday, I believe the 11th on Disney+. Mm-hmm. Plus. It's incredibly fun. I wish it was in theaters, but it's not. Uh, but it really deserves to be. But it is super funny, super cute, um, super touching. Uh, it's about a Chinese-Canadian 13-year-old and her conflict with her overprotective mom. Also, in addition, the girl turns into a giant red panda that wreaks havoc on her community. Um, it's directed by Domi Shi, who uh, directed, I believe, a previous mom and dad are fighting recommendation, the short film Bao, mm-hmm. uh, the the Oscar-nominated, maybe Oscar-winning short film uh, that Pixar put out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It, turning Red it is totally delightful, uh, I believe. It's basically going to be as beloved as Encanto by a slightly older age cohort even though it doesn't have a song like we don't talk about bruno maybe i'm grateful for that (laughs) i start my morning with bruno every day i could you know yeah maybe this will give you a little respite from bruno that would be nice that would be nice well i am recommending some trash if you haven't had it already get into love is blind season two It is (laughs) just as chaotic, if not more, than the first season. There are a bunch of strangers living in a dorm situation and dating through pods. People find love through what are apparently seven-minute dates. It looks much longer on television. (laughs) But a series of seven-minute dates with people whom they cannot see. And the question asked uh, by the show is is love truly blind which is an ableist and weird and kind of stupid question but it is a fascinating show uh there are some really messy people on there you will find a very clear villain very quickly maybe two maybe three actually but the final episode i won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen all the tremendous spoilers on twitter already because people have been talking about the outcome for about a week now uh is somewhat gratifying and it's just a good watch so if you're looking for some trashy tv love is blind season two it's streaming on netflix like if i haven't watched this at all should i just jump you in? should definitely watch season even i watch season okay. one you gotta watch season one okay yeah you gotta watch it all right so i can binge both seasons i'm yes, excited you can very quickly too <laughs> That is it for our show. But before you go, please subscribe uh, to Mom and Dad are Fighting and leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. 
And if you rely on this show for parenting advice or some company to keep you sane on your parenting journey, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's the best way to support the show. It's the best way to support Slate. Members will never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast. And you get bonus content on this show and your other Slate favorites, such as Political Gab Fest, The Waves, and Slow Burn. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus. Again, that's slate.com slash momanddadplus. Do it in memory of me. Yes, make a donation in memory of Dan Qua. If you have a question for us, you know what to do. Email us at slate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Dan Coyce and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Jamila Lemieux. <gasps> Thank you for listening. What a great final gift you gave me, Jamila. One last time. <laughs> one last time. Appreciate it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.